What a privilege to share with you on this Pentecost morning. If you've got a Bible, please do keep them open at that passage that was read to us in Acts chapter 2. And I want to use that as a springboard to uh, share what God has put on my heart this morning. But let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the testimony we've just heard from Julia how she felt your love and power. She'd heard of these things, she believed in these things, but then she knew these things for herself. We thank you that the overflow we heard was confidence in sharing you. And Lord, you care for every person. Every person counts, Lord, as Stephen says. We want every person, Lord, filled with your spirit, knowing your love and your power and with confidence to share you. And so we pray for ourselves today, Lord, that you'd send your spirit upon us. Amen. Many of you will have come across David and Mary Pitches, the founders and leaders of the new wine movement that's been going for about 30 years, attracting some 40,000 people each year in this country to summer renewal conferences, including the great work amongst 14 to 25-year-olds, Soul Survivor. And that ministry has spread all around the world, and I've had the privilege of traveling to many countries and ministering in new wine contexts where the church is being renewed by the power and the love of the Spirit to effectively share Christ. But where did it all begin for new wine and for Mary and David pitches? Well, Mary and David were serving as missionaries in Chile, and uh, they'd come home on furlough, and they were returning on a long boat ship, and uh, Mary was not in a good place. In fact, she was really burnt out, and she was experiencing daily panic attacks. It was all simply too much, and she just couldn't hold it all together. She was trying to be a wonderful and dutiful wife, a faithful Christian serving the Lord, a missionary making a difference in this far-off land, and a mother to her two girls, and uh, a person in her own right, and finding her fulfillment and flourishing, but it seemed that she was just withering. And she's on the boat. It's a long journey of several weeks. And all along that journey, every day, she sought God. She said, God, I I can't do this anymore. I don't want to to serve in this way anymore. I don't want to be a missionary on the mission field. I just want to pack it in and hide. And she was calling out to God. Every day, every morning after breakfast, she'd go up on deck And she'd be calling out to God, God, when I get there, I don't want to be the person I was when I left. Maybe some of you are watching today and you know something of that cry that comes out from deep within that you just feel weary or withered and you think, I just can't keep going on my own. Well, God never intended you to. And God on this Pentecost morning wants to meet with you. And he wants to fill you 
with his love and his power and make Jesus more real to you and enable you to be overflowing in joyful service to him. Anyway, Mary Pitches said that every day she would just walk around the, the, the deck of the ship and call out to God, help, meet me, don't let me have to face this on my own. And then one day, I was listening to her yesterday, one day she said she was by the swimming pool and she was in her bathing costume. God's no respecter of kit or persons. And there she is and she says, suddenly, she was overwhelmed. Suddenly, unexpectedly, beautifully, this was what she had wanted and been seeking. God met her. God drew near. The God she served, the God she loved, the God she believed in. Suddenly, God was near and dear to her, and his power filled her. She said she thought she was going to blow up. And she just walked around and around the boat, she said, until lunchtime, worshiping God. She told her husband a very sort of, you know, he was a bishop and a serious man, and, uh, and she told him what had happened. He, he didn't really get it. He said, well, that's nice for you, darling, somewhat patronizingly. But when they got back to Chile, he saw the difference it made in her life. A different woman. She was transformed. And he said, I want what you've got. And she prayed for him. And he sought God. And God met him too. He'd been a loyal and faithful follower of Jesus for years. A missionary and a bishop. He'd been a curate at St. Ebbs and uh, actually lived in the flat in the now rector's house decades ago. And there he was in Chile and God met him. And the consequence of that was that his ministry just caught fire. And the churches began to grow. He began to plant churches. And it just spread like wildfire. When he came back to England in the late 80s, he brought it here to Chorleywood and birthed new wine and soul survivor and so on and so on. But it began with hunger. And it led to an encounter. It led then to catching fire by the Holy Spirit. And then it became fire spreading. And David Pitches said this, whenever I was asked how or what or why, I answered with what became the watchword of my life, catch the fire. Catch the fire. Pithy and shorthand, it means get got by God. You've got to get more of God and you've got to get got by God. And God always desires to pour out his spirit on us far more than we desire to be filled by it. And he's just waiting here for us. At the end of this talk, there'll be a song called, and we're going to sing Waiting Here For You, but actually he's waiting here for us. He's always longing to meet, not just with Julia, but with us, every one of us, and fill us with his spirit. Well, that was a long introduction. Firstly, if you're taking points. God is a consuming fire. The Bible tells us this. It's actually stated in the Old Testament and the New Testament as a phrase to describe and uh, define something of his nature and character and presencing amongst us. The ancients considered fire as the sustainer of 
life. And they, they actually worshipped fire. Numerous pagan religions worship fire. There are actually over 30 specific fire gods, gods of fire. But the Judeo-Christian God is not a fire God, so to speak. He's a, a personal Trinitarian God, but he is a God who is often revealed as fire. And fire becomes a primary metaphor to describe people's experience of him and their expression of that. Why fire? I don't know. Just is what it is. God is who he is in his self-disclosure. And that's how he reveals himself. But I wonder if it's because something about fire um, symbolizes that which is elusive and beautiful and powerful and wonderful and terrible and unmistakable and life-giving and passionate and purifying wondrous and dangerous, all these things. There's something remarkable about fire. God is revealed in fire as fire. God ratified the covenant with Abraham going as a flaming torch through the sacrifice that Abraham had put out. The fire was God's presence and God's yes to Abraham's response to God. God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush that didn't burn. As the Presbyterian motto, Arden said fear ends, ablaze and flourishing. God led Israel by night in a pillar of fire. The pagans worshipped the stars, but Israel worshipped the one who made the stars. And there as the stars were out, God in a pillar of fire was leading them. God appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai as a consuming fire. God accepted Solomon's offering in the temple by sending fire. Elijah asked God to vindicate his name and, and ratify himself by sending fire, and he built a sacrifice, and fire fell from heaven. Daniel had a vision of the Lord. Chapter 7, 9, it says, the ancient of days his throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze, and a river of fire was flowing and coming out from him. The God revealed by fire. Jesus said of John the Baptist, he was a burning and shining lamp. And John the Baptist said of Jesus, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The mark of the believer, the mark of the Christian, the mark of the person who has met with God, it is, as it were, metaphorically, they are branded by fire. The mark of the Christian is to be God, the all-consuming fire, the fire of his holiness and purity, and the fire of his love, and the fire of his power, as Julia shared with us. God is a consuming fire. And we've got to hold that thought as we come to this Pentecost passage, because without it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. But secondly, the church then is birthed in God's fire. They've waited 50 days since Passover. 
They've waited and they've prayed and they've sought God and they've searched themselves to be right with God. And they've tried to get right with one another and they're pregnant with anticipation and they're waiting for the thing that Jesus said he was going to send to them. Wait in the city. Don't start doing church until you receive the power of the Spirit from on high. You're going to be clothed with power from on high. They didn't really understand it, but they knew it would look something like what Jesus looked like when he ministered amongst them. And they're there, and they're praying, and they're anticipating this. And they've gathered in Solomon's court, and they're waiting at the edge of the temple when they can all male and female gather together before they go into the separate chambers. And there, as they are worshiping and praying, suddenly, unexpectedly, expectedly, the whole place is filled with the sound of a violent wind. We've had violent winds this week. The whole place was filled with the sound of a violent wind. I wonder if some of them started falling over, their hats getting blown off and whatnot. There's a, there's a wind. The word in Hebrew for spirit, ruach, is wind. And this wind, this spirit, fills the place. And then what seemed like tongues of fire, heaven opens. It's not fire that's worked up, it's fire that comes down. Fire comes down, separates like tongues, and rests upon them. And then as the tongues of fire rest on them, their own tongues are set on fire. And they begin, begin declaring the wonders of God. When the fire of God touches you, your tongue is set on fire, and you go up to the pub where you've never been before. It's not your tradition, and you start telling people about Jesus. It's just how it is. The tongues of fire set your tongue on fire. And what an experience it was. Wow, it was universal. It was for all of them. Old and young, as Peter says, quoting Joel, old and young, male and female, servants and free. Every kind of category are covered there. All people matter to God. Everyone matters to him. And God wants to pour his spirit on everyone. Not just lay assistants, not just rectors, not just the worship band, not just those going off to be missionaries in Chile or those destined to be bishops or what. He wants everyone filled with him. Want just the apostles, want just the blokes, everyone. It was universal and it was unforgettable. They knew where they were. They knew what time it was, and they knew what happened to them. Nine o'clock in the morning, in one place, unforgettable. When you meet with God, you know. Sometimes that is in an instant, sometimes there, there is a sense of a slow burn, but you know the difference by the time you get there. It was unmistakable. They were filled. They stood up. They spoke up. They attracted a crowd. People thought, what on earth is going on here? Some mocked it and some marveled at it. When a church is filled with the Spirit, when a Christian is filled with the Spirit, some are going to mock and some are going to marvel. Some are going to push away. Some are going to draw near. And it was uncontainable. This fire just spread like wildfire. And 3,000 people get converted on the first day. 3,000! How about that? First church was a mega church. The Church of England has lost 50% of its membership since 2002. Every single age group is in radical decline. We need to put a stop to it. How? 
We need to get more God into church. We need to get more God into us. We need more of God. We need to experience the reality of Pentecost. More love, more power, and more effective service. It was unstoppable. What a difference a fire makes. I mean, what a difference. It changed everything. The fire of God distinguished this group who'd received it from those who hadn't. It distinguished this group from what they were before to what they were after, and there was no going back. The Methodist evangelist, one of my heroes, gone to be with the Lord now, was a northerner called Leonard Ravenhill. And he tells the story how on one occasion he'd been out preaching and he was driving back at night and he got in late and he woke his wife up and he said, darling, get your kit on. Come, we've got to go down to the town center. I've just driven through. The mill is on fire and the whole town have gathered to watch it burn. I love that. And Ravenhill says, you do not need to advertise a fire. It is the most self-authenticating advertising thing in the world. We need the church to be on fire. We need the church to be on fire. We wouldn't need to advertise it. People would gather and say, what is this thing? Some will mock, some will marvel, and many will join. You know, no one is interested in empty fireplaces. I mean, maybe one or two people are interested in empty fireplaces, but generally speaking, you, you know, you tend not to sit around an empty fireplace and say, nice empty fireplace, isn't it? I mean, when was the last time you did that? I got an epic one. I got a Victorian one. It's a ground with tiles and beautiful oak, you know, top. And, but I never sit in front of it and say, wow. No, a fireplace is built for a fire. Church is meant to be a fireplace. Some years ago, I was doing a conference for a, a group of London clergy, and I was really rather intimidated. I've got to be honest, about 150 vicars, and there, were, there was an archbishop and three other bishops there. I mean, terrifying for an ex-butcher from Bristol. But I was doing these talks. Anyway, one night, Bishop Charters, who I love, was there. One night, his room caught fire. He'd left the radiator on or something and his stole over it. But it caught fire. They, they managed to put it out. It was sort of chaos in the corridors in the, at that night. But the next morning, I was talking about being filled with the Spirit. And I said to the gathered saints, I said, this is the thing. You know, a bishop's mitre is shaped like tongues of fire. Do you know that? Why? Because they represent the church and the church is the place of fire and the bishops are the fire setters, the fire lighters. They symbolize it. And I said to them, that's your job. You're meant to be God's arsonists. Kierkegaard said, Christianity is incendiarism. It's fire setting. Jesus said, I have come to set a fire on the earth. God, in his blazing love and power and glory, is to be the mark of the people of God. Thirdly, we fight fire with fire, as Shakespeare said. You know, the great fire of London actually destroyed the great plague in Britain. In 1665, the 
bubonic plague in London killed 100,000 people. Here in our church, we actually have a lead, we have lead coffins, at least one, and in it, and they were lead coffins because they contained those who died with the plague. 100,000 were killed by it. In 1666, though, a year later, there was the Great Fire of London. There were only six reported deaths through that, but the firestorm killed all the rats that carried the fleas that carried the plague. You fight fire with fire. You know, firefighters often, if there's a wildfire in a forest, will start another fire and burn the underbrush and, and so on so that the fire hits a wall. It's got nothing to burn and it burns itself out. Or in an, uh, uh, an oil well where, where that catches fire, they will bring nitroglycerin and explode it above and it will suck in all the air and it will just stop the fire burning. You fight fire with fire. And all around our society today, wildfires rage. Destructive ones of the demonic and the flesh. Injustice caused by rejection of God. And there's violence and vice and selfishness and greed and great inequality and poverty and an epidemic of addictions and immorality and, and so on. Just read the newspaper. We know this. How do we deal with that? I'm grateful for our politicians and law enforcement agencies and social services and public policy makers and law lords, but the fact is darkness is rising. And sometimes it seems to have the upper hand. And the institutions and the policy makers and our politicians and our law lords, they are there instituted by God for the common good. We've got to pray for them. We've got to bless them. Some of you watching in here may be called into those important vocations. But ultimately, they can't change human nature. That's the problem. Only the gospel can. Only Jesus can. And we, the church, are entrusted with that gospel. We are the carriers and conveyors of Christ. But we need his power so that we can have a breakthrough that we can fight the fire with fire. Here in this city, a fire began 300 years ago. John Wesley, his brother was here, Charles. George Whitfield was across at Pembroke College. There were several others who became well-known, used by God. But John Wesley was a chaplain. He was a student at Christ Church, and then he became a chaplain over at Lincoln. And then he tried to go and be a missionary. He went off to America, but he failed. Scandal accompanied him. He came back with his tail between his legs. He thought, what on earth? I'm trying to do this in my own strength. And he went up to London, to Aldersgate in London. There was a meeting of German pietists, Moravians. They were reading the preface to Luther's commentary on Galatians. And as they were reading this about being justified by faith, gift of grace to faith. He said, my heart was strangely warmed. He wrote it in his journal the next day. And that warmth then became a fire. And he caught fire. And then others around him caught fire. And he went to the length and breadth of this nation, preaching the gospel, catching fire. Our nation was on the edge of a revolution, like the French. But instead of a revolution, we had a revival. Why? Because someone caught fire, and there others caught fire, and then 
the, the wildfire spread. Often outside the, ch the established church, Methodism was birthed and so on. But the nation was turned around. And years later, as an older man, he was asked the secret. What's the secret of your ministry, your effectiveness, and the evangelical revival that became the great awakening in America? He said this, I set myself on fire, and people came to watch me burn. Isn't that great? We need a church full of people set on fire that others come to watch burn. Happened at Pentecost. The fire fell, and the people came. So lastly, we must catch the fire. That was dear Bishop David Pitch's catchphrase, watchword, catch the fire. And it's for everyone. As Stephen, our rector, encourages us, every person counts. What a great line, every person counts, and every person is meant to catch fire. Let me say three things briefly. First, you've got to build a fire. Fires don't make themselves, and it's our desire that builds the fire. My youngest is home from university, doing university at home, and he's the fire maker in our house. We've got an open fire, big old cold vicarage, and he makes a great fire. The other day he said, um, well, we haven't, we haven't got any fire lighters. I said, well, you better go and buy some. He said, but we haven't got any kindling. I said, you better go and buy some. You've got you to invest if you're going to have a fire. There's no point looking at a cold fireplace shivering. Go and buy it. So we did. And we've been enjoying the, the, the cold turned into warmth in this springtime. Pentecost fire fell on disciples who'd become kindling. They'd become kindling because they'd brought themselves before God. And as it were, they'd laid the fire They'd prepared themselves in prayer and study and confession and seeking God in the upper room. They were, their desperation, their hunger to serve Him effectively. This prepared the place, the fireplace, and built a fire. And then they laid themselves on it. You've got to lay on the fire and catch fire. And then, secondly, you've got to remove what won't burn. In our open fire, it's happened a couple of times, I've noticed that great big lumps don't burn. And I think, what's that all about? And I go over and put my specs on and get the tongs out and someone's whacked a great big lump of, you know, stone in with the coal. It's not burning, it's just sat there, slate. Sat there looking at me saying, you paid 20p for that and I ain't gonna burn for you, baby. And you gotta take it off. You gotta remove what won't burn. In a very famous revival in the Black Forest, Motlingen revival, led by the Blumharts, said that they came from seven in the morning till 11 o'clock at night. There were so many who came that in groups of 40 that the pastor had to gather them and they would just all confess their sins together. They got to prepare the fireplace by confession. The fire falls on sacrifice. The fire falls on an offering of our heart put before him. And Blumhart said, the whole forest was ablaze. The whole forest was ablaze. And then lastly, fire begets fire. 
It's not us together, as it were, in deep fellowship, rubbing up close, and that's going to start a fire. <laughs> we're the context, but we're the container, but fire has to come from God. He is the one who is an all-consuming fire. And it's our proximity to divinity that makes us incendiary. And that's a bit cheesy, but it's true. It's our proximity to divinity that makes us incendiary. You want to catch fire? You've got to present yourself to God. You've got to come closer to God. You've got to put yourself, put yourself around Him. And so we've got to come to the burning bush that doesn't burn, and we've got to become a burning bush, as it were. Here's the thing, saints. God wants you to be filled with the Spirit more than you do. God wants to be present, immediate, powerful, tangible to you more than you want it. God wants His love and power to be upon you more than you do. He, God wants you to be effective in witnessing for Him and just, just fizzing with His goodness, with joy and overflowing from that. God wants it more than you do. And He's calling you to come closer and to catch fire. You were born to burn. Gerard Manley Hopkins, wonderful poem, poet, wrote a wonderful poem, and he talks about as kingfishers catch fire. You know, I love kingfishers, and, they, when, and you just suddenly catch it, and the light shining on them, and just the shimmering fire in their tails. We are made to catch fire and become fishers for the king. I'd like to invite the band up, and uh, we're just going to sing. Not just, we are going to sing. We're going to worship. We're going to bring ourselves before God. Can I encourage you to stand? In particular, ask him to show you anything in your life, any indulgence held against him, any kind of little pocket of resistance in your flesh against God, any area where you've said no to him even though he's been, he's been sort of nudging you, anything that he's been asking you to do, and just give yourself to him, talk to him, offer yourself to him. It's a tender heart that becomes tender for God. Bring yourself to him, get tender with him, and then we'll pray that God will light a fire.